0: It's May Fourteenth, 2008, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. When I was in grade three, our classroom teacher held up pictures of musical instruments. All of my classmates were quick to identify violins, trombones, and even saxophones. But when a rather curious photo of a strange, stick-like instrument was shown, only I had the courage to respond. Yes, Christopher? Why, that's a baboon, I said. This actually happened. In fact, the psychological scar was so pronounced, so profound, I guess my inevitable career path as a bassoonist was born in that very instant. In looking back at the inventory of over 40 podcasts for this series, I realize that I've never addressed the subject of this instrument that's so close to my heart. And if I have failed to talk much about the bassoon, I guess it reveals a reticence, born out of a lifelong frustration with trying to explain to other people what I do. You play the what? The bassoon, that's sort of like an oboe or something, isn't it? What's it look like? You play that every day, really? But what do you do for a living? Uh, I first picked up the bassoon 40 years ago. It's been my observation over these years that there's been a steadily declining knowledge about the bassoon, Well, I bet that in 1968, maybe even 15% of the population could recognize the sound of a bassoon or identify it from a picture. Sadly, that number today probably stands at about mm, 6%. By the way, this is not a scientific survey. I'm just extrapolating from my own endless explanations. A large majority of the North American population can identify both the sound and the image of a saxophone or a clarinet. And everybody knows a trumpet. But here's the really frustrating part. Of the few people who actually have a clue about the bassoon, more than half will readily identify it as the clown of the orchestra. I can't imagine where this moniker came from. <laughs>
1: i bought this lovely old bassoon at an auction sale one day and took it home with great delight determined i would play i shall make it speak in accents sweet in mellow dulcet tones a famous player soon i'll be i can feel it in my bones Now I'm courting
0: the
1: dear little...
0: Okay, 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 that's enough. Very funny. Even my producer wants to stick it to me. So what's so funny about the bassoon anyway? All right, I'll tackle the question straight on. When played badly, the bassoon sounds something like a wildebeest in heat. It's hard to make a sweet sound. It's tricky to play in tune... Oh, and you've got big cheeks and your mother dresses you funny. Why, even composers like to get into the game. There you have it. The most recognizable example of the bassoon for any baby boomer. Now, why Prokofiev chose the bassoon to play the gruff grandfather to Peter is anybody's guess. I mean, why didn't he choose the piccolo? Oh, all right, that's for the birds. Number two on the list... Brontosaurus, right? Disney chose the opening of Stravinsky's Le Sacre du Printemps for the animation of a post-apocalyptic dinosaur disaster in the movie Fantasia. Hmm, let's see, what else have we got? Let's see. Oh, how about drunks? Manuel Defaya, The Three-Cornered Hat, A Drunken Magistrate. How come we never get to play the Ingenue? The list goes on. How about Dying Swans? Carl Orff, Carmina Birana, it just makes you want to give up the whole thing and become an accountant. Well, in fact, for several years when people asked me what I did for a living, I told them I was an accountant. Or a physicist doing research in quantum chromodynamics. Everybody seems to know about that. Okay, let's get some facts on the table. What is a bassoon anyway? And who invented it? Well, it's the bass instrument of the Woodwind family which takes some explanation in itself. Woodwinds were historically made of wood and played by blowing, but there are huge exceptions to those descriptions nowadays. Flutes are usually made of metal. They have a cylindrical bore, and they work with what we call a velocity-dependent driving mechanism. Let me explain. When you blow across the embouchure hole of a flute... A complex set of interactive principles causes your airstream to periodically deflect into the flute and outside the flute, and the tone is thus generated by this constant, periodic input of pressure. None of the rest of the woodwinds work this way. All the others have a reed, which is a pressure valve of sorts. The sound on these instruments is generated by the periodic opening and closing of a little piece of wood against a mouthpiece, as is the case in the clarinet or saxophone, or of two bound pieces of wood, as in the case of the double reeds, the oboe and the bassoon. These little reed valves emit periodic pressure waves into the bores of the instrument and allow a steady musical tone to be possible. Clarinets share a design principle with flutes. They're essentially cylindrical inside, although I should add that over the years that cylinder in the clarinet has been modified a bit to fix some problems with intonation. The clarinet family, which includes instruments of varying sizes and pitch, use a hard rubber mouthpiece, to which is strapped a single reed made of a bamboo-type cane called arundodonax. Saxophones work the same way, but they have conical bores, meaning that their insides start small and get bigger. Now, the difference between cylindrical bores and conical bores is incredibly important for the way these instruments work, but we're not going to get into that. Oboes are sort of the baby bears of the double reed family. They have conical bores, in case you care, and they're made of the same kind of wood as clarinets, usually African blackwoods, usually, unless they're made of plastic, which they generally don't like to admit to because it keeps them out of the really good clubs. English horns are those funny big sisters to oboes with the globe-like bells that add such an odd sound to the instrument's. Oh, and by the way, English horns are neither horns or English, but that's for another day, too. Well, having described the more well-known members of this genealogical tree, we get to the papa bear of the woodwind family. Ah, the clown of the orchestra, the big brown thing in the back row. I've explained this so many times, my eyes just glaze over. Okay, bassoon lovers, here are some factoids. The name, bassoon, bas-son, well, that would be French for low sound. The Germans have a better name, Fagott, bundle of sticks. I'm not making this up. The Italians, il fagotto, those are Italian sticks. The Russians, Fagot, which in Cyrillic looks like parrot. In Canada, uh, we call it the big brown thing in the back row. Sorry, I'm kidding about that. So, what is this bundle of sticks thing? Well... If you look at a picture of a bassoon, you see right away that it looks like two wooden tubes joined together. Except the bottom piece looks like a single block of wood, which it is, which ends up confusing the average well-educated person because they figure if you blow air into one end, why the heck would you have two tubes attached to a single block of wood at the bottom? Well, the answer is pretty simple. That bottom piece, which we call the boot joint because it's good for kicking around, it actually has two holes carved in it and a little U-shaped tube at the bottom to connect those two tubes. And it allows for the three feet of bore in the smaller of the two tubes to join together with the five feet of bore of the longer and larger tubes to form one coherent conical bore that allows the bas the low sounds, to work. Keep in mind this basic principle about sound. The longer the tube, the lower the pitch. And the bassoon bore is actually about eight feet long. If you made those eight feet straight, you wouldn't be able to play it. Well, unless your arms were six feet long and you had fingers made of spaghetti. What the original developers of the old bassoons did, oh, and I should mention, they started as sackbots and then became dulcians before becoming recognizable bassoons. Well, what these clever Baroque inventors did was to figure out the principle of the boot joint and its YouTube which allowed that whole eight feet of bore to be folded, almost in half, and made it possible for normal human beings to get hands in the right places for tone holes and eventually metal keys. Bassoons started to find a place in the European repertoire in the early 1700s. For the most part, they were used somewhat interchangeably with violi di gambi or celli as basso continuo instruments, sort of the walking bass of the Baroque, if you like. Well, these early bassoons were fairly simple in construction with maybe three or five keys to help the fingers navigate the large spaces required for tone holes. Vivaldi was the first major composer to see the inherent possibilities for the instrument. Well, there must have been some talented young ladies at the pieta who inspired him, for he wrote about 39 concerti for the bassoon. Well, somebody must have had time to practice. Well, Vivaldi looms pretty large in the consciousness of the contemporary bassoonist, but his 39 concerti still pale somewhat in comparison to the sine qua non of bassoon pieces, the Bassoon Concerto of Mozart. Which brings us to a reasonably sad part about being a bassoonist and perhaps some of the reason that we toil away with so little recognition. There's really not a lot of contribution to our solo repertoire by some of the big names in the business. Johann Sebastian Bach, Beethoven, Schubert, Mendelssohn, Schumann, Wagner, Brahms, Mahler. Not a single bassoon concerto forthcoming from any of them. Not likely to be either. Well, at least we've got Mozart. 17 years old he was when he penned this little masterpiece. I imagine it just flowed out onto the paper in perfect form. I don't think Wolfie would ever have imagined the whole clown of the orchestra thing. He just somehow figured that if he explored both the virtuoso and the lyrical qualities of the instrument, that bassoonists would figure out how to play it. The thing is, this kind of vision, which Beethoven shared, is the reason that bassoons had to develop If you consider that Beethoven's symphonies were influential beyond calculation on every composer who followed, and you also figured that most of what he wrote for the instrument would have been reasonably difficult on a five-keyed bassoon, well then it's not too much of a stretch to see that all the technical innovations that the 19th century bassoon makers came up with would have had to make Beethoven bassoon parts, as well as those of Mozart and Haydn and Mendelssohn and Schubert, sound better. Well, the result of all this was that bassoons started to gain a heck of a lot of metal, keys, and more keys. If you want a wind instrument to be versatile, you have to make all the notes work pretty well and pretty evenly. In box time, you could play in C major and F major and B flat major on the bassoon, but boy, if you tried to write a part in A major, you'd have some pretty funky sounds. So by the middle of the 19th century all those limitations were starting to disappear. Of course, along with the versatility of a fully chromatic sonority came the problem of the thumbs. All thumbs. That's what we bassoonists are. All thumbs. Really, I'm not kidding. My left thumb has 10 keys to operate, and my right thumb has 6. Can you imagine how fast I am at typing on my BlackBerry? Oh, and another thing I should mention. Modern bassoons have so many keys and are so thick that they're actually quite heavy to hold. Mine weighs, boy, I don't know, 12, 15 pounds, which begins to feel very uncomfortable very quickly, unless you have some way to manage that weight. Well, we do this by attaching the bottom of the bassoon to a strap that we sit on. We call this the seat strap. Bassoonists can be very clever. Fortunately, bassoons come in pieces, so we can usually travel on airplanes without being rushed at by a coterie of TSA agents. Bassoons come apart into five pieces. The top piece is made of metal and is shaped like a crook, so we call it a crook. The next piece is the wing joint, sometimes called the tenor joint. I guess if tenors had wings, they'd look like this. Well, the wing joint is made primarily of maple, like the rest of the bassoon, but it has a rubber lining so that all that hot air and moisture from the bassoonists' mouths don't actually come into much contact with bare wood. And this is a good thing, unless you're on the lookout for some previously undiscovered antibiotic mold. bassoons made of maple, rather than ebony, like oboes? Well, you can actually make a bassoon out of that harder wood, but it becomes incredibly heavy. And because bassoons have rubber liners on one side, they don't need the extra protection that those African blackwoods, or rosewoods, can give. Maple's a nice wood to look at. It's hard, but not heavy, and it has a great ability to vibrate in the hands, so it enhances the tonal qualities of the bassoon. The maple wood is always varnished by the manufacturer to protect the exterior from the constant wear of fingers and the sweat of the poor bassoonist. It always makes the wood look rather beautiful. I hasten to add that, after a few years, that varnish has a habit of wearing away, and vintage bassoons can start looking like old violas. And by the way, I'd sooner be the clown of the orchestra than the butt of viola jokes. Bassoons last a very very long time. Unlike clarinets, which tend to have a fairly short lifespan, bassoons can actually be played for many decades. In fact, there are lots of professional bassoonists out there playing on 70-year-old bassoons, which is a good thing when you consider the cost of new instruments. Bassoons can be rather expensive. The cheapest new bassoon you can buy, at least the cheapest wooden instrument, is about $4,000. A top-of-the-line German instrument will ding your pocketbook in excess of $40,000. That's right, you heard me correctly. For the price of a BMW, you too could be the clown of the orchestra. Bassoonists like to congregate together. They're sociable, intelligent, and patient creatures. I'm not sure what to call a flock of bassoonists. Let's see, we have a murder of crows, a lodge of beavers, a brood of chicks... A muster of peacocks, well, bassoonists usually organize into quartets. This is largely a defense mechanism. You see, bassoonists don't have to explain their livelihood to one another. And in a bassoon quartet, nobody is the clown. Except maybe the contrabassoonist, but that's another story. Bassoon quartets are a great way of keeping mice out of the attic. They repel mosquitoes and they generally give any living room a touch of the exotic. I highly recommend hiring a bassoon quartet for your next dinner party. Did I mention that bassoons make great traveling companions? Once, while paddling a little-known tributary of the Amazon, I was attacked by a ferocious bale of turtles. And just before my canoe was devoured by these ravenous creatures, I had the sense to pull out my trusty bassoon case and serenade them into a soporific stupor. Their snapping ceased. I once outwitted an entire congress of baboons by explaining to them that but for a single letter the bassoon and the baboon would be entirely interchangeable. The subtlety of my reasoning triumphed, and I lived to practice another day. I can't help this silliness. I'm the clown of the orchestra. You know what's really not funny at all? is that bassoonists have to make their own reeds, Well, that's what's known in the common vernacular as a huge drag. Boy, you'd think that Walmart would have a bassoon reed aisle where you could get volume discounts on well-made reeds. I don't know, imported from Bangladesh. Surely there's enough cane and skilled labor there to absolve me of the responsibility. Nope. I've got this albatross around my neck. I can't make a decent tone on the bassoon, even an expensive bassoon, if I don't have a great reed. And to do this, I have to spend a ridiculous number of hours weekly making my own reeds. Now look, I don't want you to lose sleep over this, but you need to know that there are a lot of mornings when you're enjoying a vanilla latte while I'm slaving away in my basement, shaving minute amounts of Arundo Donax cane from a batch of new reeds, hoping that I will somehow make a reed that's responsive, flexible, good-sounding, and in tune— in all sincerity, folks, if I could have all the hours I've spent in the last 40 years making bassoon reeds and applied them in a more noble pursuit, well, um, well I could actually be doing that research in quantum chromodynamics that I only joked about. So let's sum up the whole situation. If you haven't figured this out, bassoonists harbor just a tiny bit of frustration that their great avocation in life is considered A, frivolous, B, just plain odd, C, comical, D, unlikely to generate any meaningful income, or perhaps E, all of the above. I guess when people consider us the clown of the orchestra, at least they're paying some attention but I'd like you to consider the following argument. In the orchestra, the bassoon is only one voice in an ocean of instrumental color. That voice can be odd and unique, but it's most often heard as a kind of a sonorous glue that binds together the disparate sounds of the other woodwinds. When the bassoon solos come, they reveal an instrument capable of an astounding range of character and color. Yeah, sometimes gruff and aggressive, but often surprisingly lyrical. And despite our overworked, opposable thumbs, we remain a generally gregarious subspecies within the orchestral family tree. For the National Arts Centre Orchestra, this is Christopher Millard in Ottawa.